Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is author Helen Paris. Now, Helen is a phenomenal writer. Her latest book, The Invisible Women's Club, is destined for big screen adaptation. But at the time of this interview, the film rights were still available. Now, I know plenty of industry types listen to this show, so if you're in the market for the next best exotic Marigold Hotel, make some calls. Honestly, it's so much fun. And I'd love to say that because, I'll be honest, a story about a retired old lady working on an allotment is not something I would usually seek out. So, so am I raving about it? Am I being paid? No! I just genuinely feel great writing and a great story need to be championed. Also, I love stories with really human characters and genuine human emotion, and Helen excels at writing both. I really enjoyed this chat, and I really hope you check out her work. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes, but just know that if you've ever had a period in your life where you felt a bit lost or aimless or alone, read Helen's books. She shows you the joy in unexpected human connections and ways to find yourself again. It's heartwarming stuff. It's lovely. She's lovely. This interview was lovely. And the jingle? Well, it's fine. And I'm here with Helen Paris. Helen, hello. Oh, hello, Tom. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here. And my first question, as always, what are we drinking? So I thought that it is summer and I thought we'd have some roses, lime cordial. I know I haven't had this for years. No, I haven't had this since I was a child. So I think it is some sort of British summer nostalgia kick Mm. that I'm on that made me think that's what we would sup today. Yes. And it's been very wet and windy, but the sun is out today. So it does feel very fitting to have a refreshing drink. It definitely feels that sort of uh, summer thing. So, yeah, when I drank it, I was just like, oh, gosh. I just imagine being on a sports day field. I definitely had that nostalgia here. It's interesting how flavours can do that sometimes. Absolutely. It is. You had that egg and spoon race yes. in your body as you were <laughs> yeah. down in that Rose's Lime Cordial. You'll know. I know exactly Absolutely. what you mean. So this isn't your writing drink. What is your writing drink? So my writing drink, it really does depend on what time of the day I'm writing. So when I start work in the morning, it's black coffee. And I'm sort of a little bit of a coffee fetishist. (laughs) So I have, I'm really addicted to Monmouth Brazilian coffee that I have quite strong. So I have a couple of those. And then I'll probably move on to um, a Lapsang Souchon. And then I'll slightly downgrade the caffeine to an Earl Grey tea. And then in the afternoon when I'm dipping, then I will look for a little bit of sugar. So that's where the lime cordial is coming in at the moment. So that will take me through to the rest of the day. Okay, that's mm. great. And where I'm speaking to you now, I'm seeing lots of books on the shelves behind you. Is this your writing spot in your house? It is. I am very lucky um, to have a study. I've lived in London for years, so obviously I didn't. But now I'm down on the coast and I do have a study right up on the top floor and have a view of the sea and um, I do have a lot of books. The thing is, I get rid of books all the time. I'm always taking them to the charity shop, always. I feel like every day. And yet there's never a gap in the bookshelves. I'm not quite sure what happened. I think they just mushroom over now. But yes, (laughs) there they are. Yeah. No, I've definitely got some double stacked shelves, but I found out that if you have over a thousand books, you technically have a library. I would say you have over a thousand books, and I would say that you're that's a study slash library. Oh, that's great. That means you can get one of those little librarians 
stamps and some you of this can. stuff. You yes. can, yes. Yeah. <laughs> While the day away. Yes. And <laughs> you said you, you tend to write throughout the day. Do you have a set time that you like to start writing in the mornings? So my partner gets up really early, I would say almost in the night. So she gets up at about, I don't know, four or five, and she's really full of life and she brings in two big cups of coffee to bed she goes off to work and then I don't get up for a bit and then I sometimes I get up and write but sometimes I get up and I work out because I find that it takes me a little bit of a longer time so we're talking something more humane seven o'clock so I will generally go and work out first and that sort of focuses my mind and then I come upstairs and write generally yeah for the rest of the day I'm trying to remind myself to stand up do a couple of yoga stretches, and then I clock off at about six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. You can't actually see it. I have one of those lumbar support cushions on oh, my chair. That's so excellent. You yeah. see it make all the difference. Yes. I have seen some writers when I do these interviews, and they have gaming chairs. It looks like a big racing seat. But again, it's that support. And uh, yeah, you're going to be there all day. Absolutely. No, it's essential. I have splashed out on an ergonomic chair. It makes all the difference. It really does. Yeah. And when you start writing on an idea, I feel both with Lost Property and the Invisible Women's Club, they're very strong central characters at the start, but also equally very strong settings. You have the Lost Property office in Lost Property and then in the Invisible Women's Club, it's the allotment. So how does that pairing get set off? Is it the character and go, where does this character sit? Or is there a bit of, here's a setting, now who would be there? It's such a lovely, lovely question, because because you're absolutely right. They both sort of came in and land at the same time. Mm. I think because performance making has been my career up until this point. I I make theatre, I make experimental theatre. And a lot of it is site-specific, so I often start with places. So I've made performances for California Redwoods, and I've made performances for the edge of the ocean, and I've made performances for vintage buses and that take place in life rafts, so the audience sit in life rafts. So site is a really big pull for me. And so that has absolutely crossed over into writing fiction. And in fact, the provenance for Lost Property, which was my first novel, was from a theatre show that I had done. I had gone and done some research in the Lost Property department in Baker Street. And I made a piece of work, a piece of performance work about that, about what's lost and found in life in the micro and the macro. And then I made a film set in the basements of Lost Property, which are these extraordinary cavernous places filled with lots, filled with all these bags with little labels of loss on them, bright yellow colored labels. So I made this film and then I still wasn't done with it. So then years later, part of me was still back there in those basements. And so that's what I thought, now I have to do something different with this. So now I'm going to write it. And what was back there as well, when I went back to reclaim myself, was Dot Watson, who was my protagonist. So it was that sort of setting. And then someone who would take up residence in that setting were there at the same time. And it in terms of the character, it was absolutely when I found Dot Watson's voice, which is first person and very idiosyncratic, quite old fashioned. Then I knew I had my story. So it was the voice and the place that really were the really strong trajectory. And then the same with the Invisible Women's Club. I knew, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to make a piece of work for an allotment because I've always been fascinated by allotments. 
And I hate to mention it, but before Brexit, I was always interested in allotments and how they played out a particular kind of, not even Britishness, but Englishness, you yes. know, in terms of borders and boundaries and almost a sort of a, a not a turf war, but that sense of private keep out. That says, yes. this is when my property begins and yes. yours ends and never the two, two twain shall meet. And then Brexit. Mm. And I, I can't even talk about that in terms of who belongs where and who's in and who's out. But allotment stayed with me, and I think there was just something about the fertileness of them, if you'll excuse the sort mm. of expression, that I just, but it still was very curious to me, and I still thought, no, there's something that's going to take place here. And then I was really interested in writing about invisibility, mm. particularly invisibility that I think happens to women at a certain age. People say 50, but I think I know a lot of women in their 40s who are starting to feel invisible. So there was something about wanting to use that site of the allotment where somebody takes up residence and finds a sense of purpose and something to do and to plants to nurture, but is also feeling lost and lonely and invisible. And from that, the story grew. And what I'm working on at the moment, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment, I've wanted to do something in the National Gallery oh, wow. actually forever. Nice. I love going there in my mind and I love mm. going there literally. And so now I'm giving myself that that pleasure. So yes, place is huge. And with that allotment, it's really funny because with the Invisible Women's Club, the protagonist that I've ended up with, she was just a minor character. And I just kept writing the story and I was thinking, oh, something about this isn't right. Something about this isn't right. The sort of the protagonist that I had was, she was fine, but she wasn't really doing it for me. And then like, Halfway through, this is about 80,000 words down the line. I'm thinking, well, I think it's actually this minor character that's got this plot next door with a really large privet hedge. I think it's her. But I also go to the coalface. So I worked at a lost property yeah. to do my research there. And I got an allotment to write yeah. this book. No, I was going to say, it's just the level of detail is so enriching. And the different characters of it, it definitely felt there would have been enjoyment in that research. And it's a, a great excuse. I have to get an allotment now. It's for research. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and this was all during lockdown. So it was like one of the yeah. places that we were allowed to go. Of course. So yeah. I could really happily go off having watched hours of Monty Don, go off <laughs> with my trug and my aesthetically pleasing tools and think, what the hell am I going to do here? Because I'm an absolutely terrible gardener. My partner's a great gardener. So I'd put on some rustic Norfolk clothes and poets for a few yeah. huge <laughs> publicity shot. But it's a wonderful community, yeah. you know, and I absolutely sort of learned by doing. And all of that informs what the story is. And that is often my process. because yeah. It's been my process in making work as a performer yeah. and theatre maker. And that part of it has really carried through. And so now with the National Gallery, is that somewhere where you've approached them to help with research? Or are you just going in or just going on their website or is it just memory? How are you approaching your research with that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I have to say, if I went back and had an alternative career, I would love to have done a degree in art history because I do find it so compelling. But I also love watching people looking at art. And I love mm. the diversity of people that go and look at art because the National Gallery is free. So if you can get up to London, you can just have access to all of this sort of incredible art. And I'm interested in the history of the building as well. Mm. So even a part of me thinks, oh, I could just do one of their sort of courses and maybe get in on that. I've actually just decided to do it just by being a punter. So yeah. I just go a lot. I just go whenever I can. And that sort of gives me a 
freedom to have my own sort of invisibility and I can just go and watch yeah. and watch the paintings, watch the people watching the paintings. And what I love to do is watch all those knowledgeable people who staff those galleries, who know where yeah. every single painting is, that mm. sort of, you know, like Black Abbey sort of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I've always been, art should resonate with you. The worst thing that art can do is be ambivalent. But true art is where it speaks to you as a person. And art is so subjective that the curator of the museum shouldn't be the gatekeeper to art. They have their opinions. And it's more like committee now. It's not just one person. But I would just go through and I just would breeze through rooms until something stopped me. And it's like, for me, great art, to find the artist that resonates with me, I'd rather just stroll through rooms, not stopping until something stops me and then find out who that person is and find out everything about that person because it's like that artist has touched me and resonated with me and they won't have all of that artist's work in this one gallery, but I can then go and research and find out about that person. And of course, there'll be more than one in the, the big, great galleries. And I'm just walking around going, inspire me go on artists all you dead people so someone inspire me no so it's fascinating i sometimes i think god is the way we look at art in some ways a lens to see how we actually live our lives as well because mm. you watch people like your way of doing it which is almost disobedient it's like i won't be made to do everything by yeah. i will wait and wait yeah. and see who grabs you so that wonderful way of just wanting to be responsive is authentically responsive but you know watching people and how of course now our way of looking at art, we don't look at it, we just document it and then we move on yeah. with the promise that one day we'll go through all our phone pictures and oh, then we'll God, look yeah. at it. I mean, it's, yeah. it is so fascinating. And then the people that always do a pilgrimage and come in mm. and just spend time with one painting and watching people watch paintings and just be there for a prolonged period of time, it's fascinating. You know, what are they looking at? What's it reminding them of? What are they thinking of? There's a conversation that's going on or, or how people run up to painting like it's an old friend like it, they're mm. trying to breathe it in it's wonderful watching people interact with that or not interact with it glaze over yeah yeah it's like when you've got that couple and one's really into it and the other one's clearly been dragged along yeah. but no that's great and i think people watching and just seeing people outside of yourself and yeah. how people act in different ways to yourself and trying to understand like that empathy of just trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to understand why are they acting in that way and why is that other person acting in a completely different way yeah. is a key part of creativity and artistry if you're willing to step outside your own prejudices and go oh okay that having a negative response to something i have positive or vice versa why is that and just gaining that understanding and what people bring to it and how it's all valid it's all valid and i think that's a key thing when you're a writer fundamentally it's discussing and taking apart the human condition whether it's a certain element like loneliness or just feeling lost and i think with both your book there is that element of someone losing their thread of how they defined themselves yeah. and then having to reevaluate and then yeah. find a new version of themselves yeah. I'm, I mean, I am very interested yeah. in that. I am interested in that moment in people's lives where they feel a little lost in their own yeah. life. And what is it that makes them re-see or see in you themselves? And I think yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an interest to me. Yeah. And I, in those moments, we do have to redefine ourselves. But mm. in the National Gallery, 
work that I'm doing, the protagonist has been made redundant in yeah. the middle of her life, in the middle of her career. And I think yeah. there's that moment of without my job, what is my identity? Mm, and that's yeah. a real shift in how are you perceived now as well. So that real absolute shift in perspective. Internally yeah. and externally, yeah. I'm very interested in those moments. Yeah. And it's, it's great to have that because I feel so many people have that. And as we've said, like throughout their lives and having the shared experience because it can be so isolating because yeah. it's such an internal thing. Because externally, your friends still see you as in person, but your sense of self is shifting. Absolutely. And so it's hard to articulate to other people. But when you read that in a story, you go, oh, it doesn't just happen to me. Yes. And here's yeah. a character going on a similar path and a similar yeah. journey. Yeah. And I feel that's one of the great things of art yeah. is showing these very personal, very isolating things as a shared experience in the human condition. Absolutely. Those moments so, of recognition, I think that I know as a reader, mm. those are the moments in books that I feel that real sense of kinship or that real sense of belonging or that real sense of you feel understood. I think yes. one of the reasons I want to write or I want to make performance work, I want that kind of connection with an audience. I want yeah. to have that sort of, yeah, that sense of contact and communication and shared base of yeah. shared experience. Mm. That, and that's great because it's such an important element of life that I don't think is not that it's taboo, but it's just not so strongly discussed. Yeah. And to have that as your brand as a writer, two <laughs> books in, is great. Because I feel that we know people going through these identity crises in part of their lives. And it's just like, oh, I don't know what to say or do. But it would go, I can give them a Helen Paris book. <laughs> that, that, that might help. And I think that's great. And I think also, as you'll dealing with different protagonists in different circumstances at different points of their lives and understanding that process is interesting as an evolution of your writer because yeah. you're learning more about that process and the strength of the telling of that element of the human condition just gets refined. So it's, it's an exciting thing as a reader to see you improve and master that concept over time so that whatever book comes out next is going to be an exciting progression mm. on that theme. So that's really cool. Going on a bit of a tangent now. I love a tangent. Good. Okay. Because I just can't think of a cohesive way to just narratively <laughs> drift it. So I was like, just going to turn a corner. So the sense of space is a really strong draw. And the research of actually being in the space is really strong draw. But what's a challenge for you in the opening planning stages? Where is it just an uphill struggle? Is it fleshing out the character or getting a coherent narrative that justifies that space. Research and being in the space is fun, but what's the hard bit? Yeah. For me, I think a lot of writers talk, don't they, about being a pantser or a plotter. Yes. And I'm so totally pantser. And I'm really happy with that. Like I did this actually completely wonderful paper novel writing course. And I really did it because partly I wanted to let myself be a student because I've been a teacher for most of my life as well. So it's really delightful to be a student. And also I'm, I wasn't a writer, so I wanted to learn the craft of writing. But I also was really looking for community. And so in a writing class, you instantly meet all these people who have completely different processes to you, which is fascinating. But then people would be talking about, I mean, it was like a different language. It was like beat charts and sticky notes and plotting graphs and character Venn diagrams. And I had the sort of cold sweat that I got in a... <laughs> 
GCSE maths class. Yeah. Thinking, no, this isn't, this is me. I don't do any of that. I've got my setting. I've got my allotment. I've got my mm. national gallery. I've got a sense of my protagonist and her, the sort of the moment that she's in that is just a moment of crisis or a moment of shift and change. And then I generally know how it's going to finish and pretty much got like the last page. And then I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And I find that quite revitalizing. That's mm. what makes me want to write the book. And I know a lot of writers talk about that. And I know that I remember the first time I heard about people writing synopses before they'd written the book, I was quite affronted. I was like, what? Like cheating. You know, how can you tell the story yeah. before you've written the story? But of course, now a couple of books in, I can see the value of doing that because to go focus back on your question, which is about what do I find difficult? So plotting and structured, especially if you are not a plotter, if you just come into it in a more organic writing way, there can be moments when having a sense of structure written down or marked out or Venn diagram can be really helpful. And my agent, in fact, very charmingly suggested that for the next novel, I might like to write synopsis because in with the Invisible Women's Club, I had written probably two different iterations sure. of it before I got to the third one because I was always, this isn't quite it, this isn't quite it. But unfortunately, I had to write fifty to 60,000 mm. words before I realized that wasn't quite it. And I could have realized that over the first couple of hundred. <laughs> so that, that is it. That's what I struggle with. Yeah. And... I am trying to find ways to sort of ameliorate that. And also, I'm still going to be a pantser because I like the organic structure. Mm. I like the not knowing. I like the unraveling and the surprising and the curiosity because yeah. that is what keeps my heart beating with the book. And there is something about having the whole synopsis written out that makes it, I don't know that I need to write that now. So I'm trying to have a sort of a little bit of a happy sort of medium between the two. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where I might think that thing about structure yeah. and plot. I'm, I'm going to give you some new terminology that you can oh. try out that might yes. help. Okay. Because, yeah, there's the planners and the seat of your pants, the pantsers. And that was something that I'd heard about before I started this podcast. And I know you've started listening to the interview with Jen Williams, a oh. wonderful writer or listeners. Mm -hmm. But she tells me about gardeners. And I think it was J.R. Warren mm -hmm. who told me about architects and gardeners. And Composting. 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 That's yeah. it. Yes. You've got to put all the shit out and then see what grows. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful positive. Because I think with planners and pantsers, it sounds like organized people and chaos demons. Yeah. And it's just, it's positive in one way. Whereas with architects and gardeners, architects, if you find a fundamental flaw as part of your process, you've either got to bodge job it to fit it, or the whole thing comes tumbling down and you've yeah. got to start up again. So architects, in that case, it's just there's a bit more stress with the planning. Yeah. And gardeners, it's like, well, you just put it all out and it's more of an organic process. And so I think if you are a pantser or have identified as a pantser, call yourself a gardener. You can go back to your agent and go, don't worry, I'm not a pantser anymore. I'm, no, a, gard I'm, a, I'm gardener. a gardener. With architectural aspirations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> there may be a trellis in the future, but not now. Oh, there's always a trellis. <laughs> yeah. I think as well as the National Gallery one, I've got a few horses in the race at the moment, which is just fun. And there's different genres. So I've got three, but there's two that I'm leading with. But one I've decided I'm going to percolate. And that's exactly yeah. how I see it. It started as a short story, but there's something about it that I'm really interested in to develop into a bigger tale. 
but I'm thinking that also sometimes things work in a short story because they are only 600 words. So I thought I'm just going to let that percolate. And that just gives me a little kind of caffeinated buzz as well when I think yeah. about it. So I'm quite into percolating. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. And everything takes its yeah allotted time and you can't yeah. rush certain things. Yeah. You did just say there's a few different genres. And I did want to ask you about genres because I feel that when you were promoting Lost Property, your debut, it was book club book was the sort of described genre, which interesting in it of itself, but just how you approach genre and what sort of genres are you interested in writing in the future? Yes, that's a lovely question because I think I was quite ignorant about genres. I always gravitated towards books that I just love to read. So I always knew I'd want to read something that Rachel Joyce had written. I always knew I wanted to read something that Kate Atkinson had written or that Anne Tyler had written. I didn't think about them as genre. I just thought these are brilliant writers who create worlds that I want to be part of. So I just thought I want to write a story that's set in the lost property department in Baker Street. And it's about loss and all its myriad forms, everyday loss of a glove to the cataclysmic loss of a parent or loss of a memory due to Alzheimer's. And so I didn't cite it or situate it with any sort of genre. And then as I became more, less rookie, realized about genres, but I suppose I still, in some ways, I'm just writing the books that I would like to read or the stories that I want to tell. And I just fancied, because I'm out of contract now, and I think that there's <laughs> something terrifying about that, but there's also something really totally liberating about oh. it. So I'm going with the liberating so I thought, oh, so I have the National Gallery, which I think is the sort of story that I think will be accepted and I think won't let down the incredible readers that I have got to know. But I've also quite liked to have a go at cosy crime because I'm quite fond of reading it. And because there is a little whiff, a tiny whiff of mystery in what I've written, as if they're in a very, very small way. What if that's a little bit bigger? So I'd like to try that. And I don't think that would be such a big crossover for readers yeah. anyway. And I just think I'd like to give it a go. And I think yeah. there's something quite freeing about doing that and having the two horses in the same race. Yeah, I can definitely see that because not wanting to spoil the book, but I have read The Invisible Women's Club and absolutely loved it. The elements of a spy thriller. And very enjoyable as a reader, but also I could tell it's like quite enjoyable as a writer, I imagine, just to have those drops in there. And yeah, cosy crime, I think, again, it's such a, an English thing as well. I know, and I know. It's I can like, totally see yeah, your style yeah. really complementing that. Yes, it's the world of the cardigan, quintessential English. But, you know, I'm, so I've been reading some Ellie Griffiths and I love what she does with her detective. So she's got like Harbinder Kaur, who is a Sikh. Indian lesbian who's not out to her parents and lives at home. What a brilliant, brilliant protagonist for your, for yeah. your detective. It's just lovely. So I think there's a lot of exciting places to mm. go and writing a little bit of crime. And also I'm somebody that comes from autobiographical performance. So now I'm suddenly having fiction. It's just so pleasurable when you can just make it up. So it is lovely. So I've also heard, and I can't remember where I heard it now, but that somebody was talking about it was saying that crime writers and crime vessels are the best because crime writers are the nicest, most convivial, which <laughs> yes. I just, I love knowing that. Another thing I wanted to ask about when you're setting up your stories, are you a prolific note taker or do you tend to just keep it all in your heads and then just try and recall it as you sit down to a writing session? I do take notes. 
And I am one of those writers that has a tiny little sort of portable notebook or exercise book that I have with me that I transfer to whatever bag I'm taking out. And then on my desk, I have very little on my desk, but I do have a big notebook that allows me to do more drawings in it, actually. I quite like to draw and some of the scenes. So yes, I like that because of memory and I like it because it's also about not just situating the writing to one room, to one space. Mm. I think there's something for me that is quite fruitful about a forward motion. I like writing sort of not just in one place. I do think for me it gets, it does literally get static. So I like to write in different places and I've also been in times in my life where I haven't had anywhere to write. So you get used to that. And I remember when I first started writing, I would write anywhere. And I also I was working full time, so I didn't have time or space. Mm. So then you have to find it in these sort of quite interesting ways. I remember sitting on a bench, and I think it was in Washington Square Gardens, and this chap was urinating on the bench as I was sitting on it. But I was like, I've just got to finish getting these notes down. <laughs> and then I'll let him have his bench. Oh, writing, you know, on, when I hadn't got my notepad, just like on receipts. Yeah. So I do have that. I do have that sort of thing and I like that I like the sort of analog of that yes yeah from what I've heard that sort of writing with a pen and paper just feels much more connected to the words than writing on a notes app in your phone I think maybe because we're raised with handwriting and typing as a form of expression we're not raised in typing maybe it's a generational thing it is Um, maybe it is yeah Maybe it is, absolutely. But I do, and I love writing in pencil as well. And I do think you write differently, you think differently. There is something, because it's choreographic. There's a body relationship to it. So I do think that sometimes if I want to be thinking of a different way, if I want to be a little bit more free, I will just take pencil and paper and I will go on the move and I will write in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. One thing I wanted to return back on, not letting it pass, you drawing scene, is that you storyboard them at like a movie or is it just like a map geographically that you're like looking down going, where are all the individual characters in this scene? How do you interpret that in your drawings? So I think it's less sort of structured and architectural than that. And it is <laughs> just more, I'm I just thinking, so I think sometimes it's, it's about a way of imprinting the journey so like in lost property i really felt that this was a journey from somebody who was literally down in the basement he was literally under everything mm. and then at the end emerges so sometimes i would write that i would draw this little pencil drawing that was about that sort of manifestation mm. of her actual sort of emotional psychological journey i would draw it but sometimes it's just the character i think she looks like this so i would draw those sort of pictures of the characters so they're quite expressive probably a lot less useful in some ways but not structural, it's much more expressive than structural. No, I, no, I think it sort of like leans into that organic, expressive, emotional aspect, which is done so well in your books, is actually having the face of your character or how they're dressed to remind you of their state of being. And it's just to remind you of their status at that point of the novel. Because sometimes with bad writing, and I think we've all witnessed it, where they're just like, suddenly they do something and hold on weren't they injured where's that injury gone yeah and i think that visual way of marking something is again comes from making performances when you're doing devised performances and also because you have the freedom in performance that it can be really non-linear so i've got Mm. little images on just little cards there's little index cards and so doing drawing pictures of what happens in that scene just as a quick sort of aid to memoir or having just a couple of words that express what happens in that scene. And then I would move them all around and see which was the best order for the show to be. And I like mm. that organic way of yeah. making them work. And I think that's another thing that translates. So I, there are some processes that are quite different from making performance that mm. I use now as a fiction writer. But there are some that are 
really in conversation with each other or exactly the same, which I like. Yeah. It's always interesting to me. I'm still telling stories, but this time I'm not embodying them. Mm. This time the relationship with the reader is on the page, but there is still a sort of an intimacy and a sense of personal address that I want to yeah. find. So I, I use the first person. I like to use the first person quite a lot, which is the voice I would use in performance as well. But it's all about wanting to find that sense of proximity or intimacy with a reader for them to find that with the characters and for them to find that with the story. So it makes sense to me that some of the methods are the same. Yeah, no, absolutely. And moving more on to your method of writing, when it actually comes to a writing session, do you have a particular goal in mind of, I want to get this scene down or I want to do a chapter or for certain word counts or a certain conflict has to be overcome? When you sit down in the morning, say, okay, I'm going to start writing today. Do you have a set daily goal or is it a weekly goal? How do you approach your writing sessions? Yeah, I don't do word count. I've, every time I've tried to do word count, it all falls apart because I do think your focus then is counting the words and not focusing on the story. That's what I do. When I do word count, I end up cutting most of it. So I don't do word count. But I do think the goals are good, especially when otherwise everything get a bit amorphous. So I yeah. do think it's good to have goals. And that's why deadlines for me are really good. So I would, might say to my agent, can you just give me a deadline? For this because I'm quite obedient, I'm quite a good <laughs> student, so I will fulfill it, so I know that. So that's my big picture, I ask for that, and then work towards that in a day or over a week or over a month or whatever it is. What the structure that I give myself is to finish scenes, and I work from the beginning of the book, and I'm working through, and sometimes I want to write a scene that I know isn't going to happen yet, but I'll write it and then I'll pop it. But mostly I, I work through sequentially, and even if later on I might tear all of that up. But it's definitely I, my job every day is to finish the scene that I'm working on, even if I think, oh, that was a really shabby couple of paragraphs. I yeah. got to the end of it because you've just yeah. got to write it. You've got to have a batch. So I do that and I do try and get to the end of the scene. But I don't do that thing that I know some writers do do that I think it's remarkable when they just leave themselves a little kind of teaser at the end, like a cliffhanger to go back to the next day to give them that certain sort of je ne sais quoi. I'm thinking, I yeah. can't do that. If I didn't write what I was going to finish writing, I wouldn't yeah. remember it. So I don't do that. I do just finish and then start the next scene the next day. And I'm quite disciplined with myself. I will do that. I will finish the scene. But I do find it really helpful to have a deadline. And sometimes I also find it really helpful to have community because so much of the writing that I've done, just in terms of the timing of when it's happened, has been in lockdown. And I am somebody that is a performer and I am a teacher and I like people, I like being with people. So I do find that, I find that difficult. Although I think the theatre is very collaborative and there are absolutely parts of writing that are incredibly collaborative. When all these extraordinary sort of brilliant angels swoop in, you know, the publicists and the copy editor and obviously your agent and obviously your, your editor and all of these people that come in and just take some of that weight and they do all these remarkable things with the book and marketing and publicity people, these absolute goddesses come in. But there is the bloody lone journey bit of it when it's just you and that notepad and bloody pencil. <laughs> it is your lone journey. So there is something to me that there is something about community and conviviality that I do seek. So sometimes I will just go to the British Library and look at all those other people. And yeah. I find that I like that. Like, even when I'm not talking to them, there's a discipline in that I enjoy. And I do also enjoy like listening to your podcast. Or Lucy Atkins has a lovely Instagram that she does every week, and it's short, but it's just done. Um, it's yeah. part of that whole thing about 
how do you get some work done? Sometimes it's about being self-disciplined and being on your own journey and finishing your bloody scene. Mm. But sometimes it is about saying, and in this part of the day, I'm going to do my 10,000 steps and then I'm going to watch yeah. Lucy Atkins' podcast or I'm, I'm going to listen to Jen Williams on your yeah. podcast because it is really good to get a different energy in and listen to someone else's process or listen to a really good writer <laughs> giving you really bloody good tips. Because Thank you. Promoting the show is always great and I'm glad it helps. Yeah, so. it really is. And it is very convivial as well. And I think that is so nice about it. And I think fighting is a process. That's why I like it. It's like a practice and a protest. I'm a big, I'm a big yoga. I did a lot of yoga and I like that because it's a process. You're always aspiring. And so every book I write, I'm hoping the next one is going to be better because it is part of the process and it is the long game. And in that, things shift and one's processes shift and, you know, your way of writing and thinking shift and alter and adapt. And that's exciting. That's what makes you want to keep doing anything, yeah. you know. And another thing I wanted to touch on about your process, as you said, with the Invisible Woman's Club, you'd written about 60,000, 80,000 words before you realised your protagonist wasn't working. Are there moments that you get really stuck in? How do you identify at that point when it gets bad? How do you know it's time to junk it and start again rather than to battle through? Because I think so yeah. many times people can get that struggle and yeah. it's just knowing what is it that drives you to say, no, this is a problem that yeah. I just need some time to think about. Yeah. And this is a problem that it's just actually, for my own mental health, it's just going to be better to trash and start again rather yeah. than try and force through. Yeah. So the first time I did it, it was structural. So I'd written this story and it was just, I knew what I wanted to write about, female friendship and invisibility and a little bit of menopausal vigilante activism thrown in. As you did. But it just, the focus wasn't right and the structure wasn't right. And so my editor could point that out and I, I knew that. So I rewrote it and I retitled it. And titles are quite big for me mm. as well. I retitled The first time it was named after a plot. Second time it was named after the protagonist, Janet Pinn. Third time, the winning time, it's named after the theme, which yeah. was the invisibility, you know, invisibility. And I wasn't really just quite just being ballsy enough to just own that theme. Yeah. And I could see my way into that. But the final time I changed it, which was the most excruciating, because you've been with your book for such a long time and it's still bloody lockdown. So you've been with your book and nobody else for such a long time. And you've rewritten it so many times. And if this was, I think this was October and I was supposed to give it in January. So I was just really basically doing my last, we'd been back and forth and I was just doing my last edits and my agent was happy with it and my editor was happy with it and I wasn't happy with it. And then it was because I just thought like, there's a character here that's the wrong character and I have to change her. And I'm thinking, oh my God, TikTok. But this is a really good thing because you've done so much bloody work on it and because you know it and because you've gone through all of that hell because you've just been there at the cold face, you've just kept on doing it and redoing it. You absolutely bloody well know what it is that you have to do. And this was like, no, this is a character. So even though it felt huge, I was killing one character off. And she's been there forever. And this has been with me for like a couple of years. Kill her off and bring in this new one who I haven't spent any time with. But I have spent time with her because innately, I know that this is right because of yeah. everything that I've done up to this point. So even though it did feel like a risk and it was a big rewriting, I also could do it. And the writing was really fast because... Yeah. It was right. It was the right move. Yeah. It felt risky, but it was it was right. And because I had done all of that work, so we knew that it was right. But it's not the most fun way to write, <laughs> I have to say. But it was interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's interesting because I was the one 
even though I could get the check off from everybody else. And these are these incredible, fabulous people that know what they're talking about. Mm. There was something that wasn't right for me. And now I'm really happy with the book because of that change. So, And going a bit more depth about rewriting, are you someone who just writes a vomit draft of just all the ideas, just like race to the end and then pick up the nuggets of gold on your second draft? Or do you find yourself reworking scenes as you go? How is your drafting writing process? So both. So the first book that I wrote with Lost Property, it was that. It was the everything down and then work it and work it, work it when you're from the whole draft. With the Invisible Women's Club, there were three different those. And there were some bits that was kept and salvaged from each. But with the book I'm writing at the moment, I'm going much slower. So I think part of that is decent. You have to get that first draft down and you can't funny around and you can't be too precious. But I am also trying to be, like I said, I'm just trying to work a little differently with this. So I am working a little bit slower. So I'm editing a little bit more as I go. And I think that is the right thing. But for the cozy crime, I'm going the other way because I think I know what that story is already. So that's coming out really fast. So again... I've got these, sorry to keep using all these idioms, but yeah. I've got two horses in a race and one is going at one speed and one's going at the other and they're both. Yeah. But, but, but that that absolutely comes from a learning experience. But I do fundamentally think it's actually, you've got to get that first job done. I do think mm. that is right, even though I'm working slightly differently at the moment. Yeah. I think, yes, I'm going off memory rather than research here, but when I interviewed Tim Sullivan about his crime novels, he was very much, he wanted to write that first draft because he didn't know how the crime had been, committed and it was a very much it was his detective work yeah but that's how you make it look smart because you drop in all the little clues yeah 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 and I think there's something that I have really had learned and I think this really is true that you realize how incredibly important those first three chapters are and not just the first three chapters but the first chapter and the first page and the first paragraph and the first sentence you do realize how important they are of course you can always go back and return to them but I want to get those right before I really sally forth with this one, because it's the, one of the things, the big things that I've learned is that thing about cutting to the chase more. That you really do have to get the reader there, that they are interested, but you have to seduce some PDQ, you know. Mm. So there's first three yeah. chapters, you have to get them in. And I think that's a skill and it's a mm. craft. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. That's sort of what I love about this is that I feel like a student who is garnering up different levels of experience, yeah. you know, through practice and through listening to other writers and through reading, attentively reading. Mm. One thing I want to return back to, you were saying earlier about all the people involved in the making of a book, all the goddesses that assist you on the journey. Now you're out of contract and you're writing a few pieces. Once you've got a draft that you're comfortable with in isolation, who are the next people to read it? Do you have beta readers? Who who do you look for feedback from? Yeah, so my partner who I have my theatre company with. So we have always collaborated. So we have a very easy relationship in terms of sharing creative material. And she's also just absolutely brilliant editor. She's brilliant. So it's such a gift. Mm. So that she's the first person and she reads everything and she gives really incredible feedback and editing. And then you have a couple of writers. I think you have to be careful. I think you have to know what it is that you want. I like it if people are asking me to read something, I like them to tell me what kind of feedback they want. What are they looking for? Are they looking for structure? Are they looking for character? Are they looking for legibility? Or what is it that they want? Because that helps me. And I also think that structure can help things not become too emotional. Because all you really want when you give somebody something is for them to say, that's great. Yes. Don't change a word. It's perfect. 
<laughs> no need to do anything more. And of course, nobody says that because that's not what it is. It's a work in progress. So I think to be really clear about what you want from that feedback, I think that's really helpful to be really honest about what you're looking for. There's a couple of people that I would send an excerpt, not everything, because you know people are busy and they're all doing their own writing, an excerpt with clear guidelines about what I'm looking for yeah. so they can just adhere to those guidelines and then I can glean what I need to from that. I think that's, for me, that's quite a helpful way of getting feedback. But that's a small group because, again, I don't think, especially if you're doing that, in early, earlier stages, you need to keep your confidence up and you need to know what you want. And then obviously, when I feel I've got it into a shape that I'm more or less happy with, then I would send it to my incredible smart agent. Or if I'm in the midst of writing, I'd send it to my editor. So depending on what situation I'm in. So at the moment, it's my yeah. agent. Okay, great. And when you've finished a project, because it, it takes quite a long time, from your initial conception to signing it away and going, okay, that's the final draft. It's going to the printers now. And then there may be like proofreads, but fundamentally the story is told. Is that a relief moment for you? Or is that a grief moment for you where it's just, I'm not going to spend time in that space with those characters anymore. Or is it just, I'm really keen to get onto the next project. <laughs> so I'm glad to have all the edits finally signed off. I'm sure it's a mixture of both, but do you find it tends to lean into more of a relief setting to start something new? Or do you have a period of grief before you start something new? It is absolutely a mixture. But I think, particularly with Last Property, maybe my first book, I had felt a sense of grief because mm. I was incredibly close to the story and incredibly close to the protagonist, who's a very particular kind of a woman. And I was just wondering, I really did wonder how she was going to be out there. Do you know, I figured she mm. was going to be probably all right. But I was a bit worried for her. And it's so interesting in that connection that you have. So that was definitely about grief. And I didn't want to let her go. I wasn't sure that I wanted to let her go. But with the Invisible Women's Club, because it had been hard, there was some relief in having it done and wanting to get onto something else. So there was some relief. And then you, there's a little bit of space before it comes back to you. By the mm. time I sent them off, they were so ready to go. And that's a really nice feeling as well, especially if, if there's been some sort of working and reworking when you actually think you're really convinced then they're ready. You know, of course you can yeah. always make something better. Of course you can. Of course you can. Life, life has to go on and the next book has to be written. And yeah. the story's told. And that's a nice feeling when you think, yes, that. It's the book I wanted to write. And I think you have to feel that. And I, yeah. that, I really hold that feeling. And I would say that to anybody. If you can mm. feel good about the book that you wrote, and then, of course, you want people to like it. Of course you do. But I think you have to like it. You have to feel proud of it. You have to feel satisfied. And that is a really good feeling. And yeah. Yeah. Great. We've talked at great length. And I've really loved speaking to you today. As you've listened to the show, you know the last two questions, but I've got to say them out loud anyway. It's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything in particular that you learned during writing The Invisible Woman's Club that you're now applying to either or both of the works that you're working on now? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm probably just going to re-say what I've just said, which is basically not to rush. I really learned not to rush and to cut to the chase more, to really in those first three chapters, to nail it in terms of pace, in terms of storyline, in terms of plot, to really take the reader there, that those first three chapters do need to do quite a lot of heavy lifting to get it going. Yeah, to cut to the chase more. I think that's okay. definitely what I've learned. And okay. yeah, not to rush. Okay. And because I feel that this could be the same answer, so I'm going to try and frame it a bit differently across all of your writing is there one piece of advice you found yourself returning to that you know something that you either read or got told 
But even back in your theatre days, it's just this is the one token advice that I would always tell and always resonated with you. Yeah, and it is actually from the old theatre days, which is that the only way home is through the show. And it's about you keep on keeping on. It really is so simple, but it's just sometimes you just have to write it. You know, that's the only way home. The only way home is through the story. That is your way. And sometimes you can spend a lot of time thinking and worrying and chatting and note-taking and conversing with other people about it. And actually, you can get a lot more release and relief by just sitting down and writing it. And that is actually quite lovely. And to believe that that focus, that story, just believing in that and letting it take you through, mm. that'll take you home, that'll take you to the end of your story, that'll take you to the end of your journey. And I find that quite helpful. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's a great piece of advice and not one that I've heard before. Thank you very much, Helen. And thank you very much, Helen Parrish, for being my guest this week. Oh, thank you. It was absolutely lovely. And that was the real writing process of Helen Paris. I told you it was lovely. You can find Helen on Twitter and Instagram and The Invisible Women's Club is released on the 3rd of August 2023. Uh, I only put the year in because I know some of you will be listening to this uh, far into the future. So 3rd of August is the future when this episode was first released, but is the distant past for most of you. Time's nuts. But future listeners, I appreciate you and it's never too late to buy Helen's books. I wish I was better at outros, to be honest. I, I feel I should be able to give you a, like a little bonus for listening to the whole thing. But there's no ads, so that's nice. Uh, you know, make a website with whoever you want. Eat whatever you want. I don't care if you use a VPN. Live your life. I'll play the song in a second, though. I know you love the song. I know you've missed the song. Oh, here's the intro note that I talk over. You know, the bit where I say, please keep writing and make it go loud after I say, until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its cause.
the shift and pull of the tides never Oh